friends. Welcome to the Sales Enablement Podcast. I'm your host, Andy Paul. Hey, I have a new feature on the show this week. And in this segment, I'll be having friends stop by to have some rapid-fire conversations about trending topics in sales. So joining me today is my friend Howard Brown. Howard's the founder and CEO of RingDNA and one of the most interesting people I know. He's an incredibly successful serial entrepreneur, a clinical psychologist, and an expert on the psychology of selling. Be sure to stick around for my main guest today. That's Michael Tuso. He's the Director of Revenue Performance at Chili Piper. All right, so Howard, there's this message that was on Reddit message boards and forums, and it, it, the question was, hey, I just got promoted to manage a team of five or six outside sellers. I'm 26 years old. My team is all in their 30s and 40s. How do I earn their respect? How's he do it? How's she do it? I think by uh, finding out what it is that each of them needs to uh, respect you, right? So I think everybody uh, everybody respects people for different reasons. And I think finding out what's important to each of uh, their new reps. Um, yeah. Yeah. Well, I think that I mean, there's this old saying is, you know, people don't care what you know till they know that what you care or know that you care. Yeah. And I think, you know, it's it's a little simplistic, but I think it's it's good guidance if you're a, a younger person inheriting a team of older sellers, which I certainly did my first sales management job. I had about half the people who were older than I was and half our peers. Um, yeah, uh, you're absolutely right, as I think, is, is find out what's important to them. What are they trying to achieve? What's important for them to accomplish you know, in business and in life? over the next you know, X period of time and, and see if there's a way that you can help them achieve that. Yeah. I think whether you're selling or developing a relationship or managing people, asking questions to find out about them, what motivates them, what interests them, um, so that you can best position yourself to be helpful is, is the way to enter any relationship. And, and respect is something that you earn. It doesn't matter what ages you are. It's something that, uh, you know, it's in today's day and age, you have to earn it. And so uh, you do that by showing general interest. You should do that by focusing on uh, the other person and what you can do to be helpful and you'll earn that respect. Yeah. And I think for, as a younger person, it's important not to come across like you're there to teach them necessarily because chances are, yeah, they may have more experience, but you certainly can be a guide to help them learn more. And so by giving them feedback about areas that they could improve, that if they improved would help them achieve what the goals they set out that they laid out to you, that's how you sort of teach them. Absolutely. And the world's best uh, coach is definitely not the world's best player. A coach is somebody who has the ability to see um, both your bright spots and areas that you may be challenged and provide um, some honest and hopefully helpful feedback. And they can only do that by understanding um, where you come from. So, yeah. Okay. So, next, next, yeah, quick topic for us here is, is I posted on LinkedIn about sort of a pet peeve, which is male sellers, men, that assume this false false intimacy and use words like buddy and pal. 
And for me, those are like instant disqualifiers. Now, this has gotten a ton of reaction on LinkedIn. I'm just wondering, if your salesperson's talking to you and they call you buddy or pal, what's that do for you? Yeah, it's it's somewhat off-putting. It just definitely depends on their ability to build rapport quickly. There are certain people that have this amazing ability to just make you feel connected. And it's not because they said bro or dude. It's something <laughs> else that they did that helps me feel like they're there, they understand, they're you know of the type that is going to be helpful. And if they happen to use a bro or a dude or something like that, Maybe they earn that right. But for the greater majority of people, it's fairly off-putting. I'm, you know, I'm not a 20-year-old bro and dude may work what? well for younger people. <laughs> I know, believe it or not. You don't look but, a day over. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, a day over what, Andy? Come on. <laughs> day over. A day over whatever. Wait, I, 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 important point here. I think what you're talking about is this bro dude culture where you know, whether you're in Las Vegas and you go to the pool and people are high-fiving each other in the pool or you're, you know, you're at a, uh, you're, you're at an event and at a hotel and, and you see people like just slapping high. It's just, it's a very young, different male testosterone driven, um, way of connecting that, quite frankly, is not really what I'm looking for in my business. I mean, women manage to sell perfectly well without saying it. Absolutely. <laughs> I mean, I've, never, look, I've never heard a woman say, hey, buddy, or hey, pal, unless maybe they were mad at somebody. Listen, I don't want to overly generalize, but I think oh, let's do. there's rarely times where I would get that sort of speak from a woman. Yeah. Well, I mean, I, I I start coming up from the perspectives. We got all these great tools, today, such as LinkedIn. So if if a salesperson reaches out to me, which they do all the time, and they yeah you know, <laughs> they have if they haven't looked at my LinkedIn profile and look at you know just get a sense of who I am, right? I mean, it, it's like what universe would they think it'd be okay for a twenty three year old to call me buddy or pal? I think what you're what you're talking about at its root is know your audience. Yeah, exactly. Understand who your audience is and what they care about. It's that basic preparation. If they if they looked at your LinkedIn profile, they'd see that you're a you know thirty year old man that probably isn't <laughs> going to be uh, you know well uh, isn't going to yeah. like the dude bro thing, right? Thirty but, years old, that'd be great. But you get my point. Yeah, it's really yeah. understand who you're talking to, what they care about, exactly what, what demographic they may be in, you know, what what level of education, what kind of company they do they work at, what job position, what do they post about, how do they talk, and yeah. find a way to to associate, to, to connect. Yeah, I mean, for me, it's like it's not like I don't have a public record, you know, 800 plus podcast episodes and similar number of posts and so on. It's like, yeah, to your point, do your research, get a clue. It's just lazy. Yeah. And that's part of it. I think that's the part that irritates me most. It's just lazy and careless and it, it doesn't have to happen. Get a All clue. Right. Get I a clue. It. Get a clue. All right. So another topic, there's 
been increasing writing on LinkedIn Talk, on LinkedIn, about a topic that I think is near and dear to your heart because of your background as a trained psychologist is about mental health in sales. And I was reading something oh, a couple weeks ago, and I, it didn't so, give a source for the data, but it said that sellers are three times more likely to struggle with mental health symptoms than the average American, and two in five sellers struggled with mental health issues in 2019, pre-COVID. Pre and this is like a third rail. You know, we talk people talk the third rail in politics being, you know, talking about social security. It's like the third rail in sales. It's like almost no one talks about this. And this is such a high stress environment. Why why can't we cultivate a more open discussion of this? I think that there are definitely those who have been trying to open up about mental health in sales. Uh, Richard Harris is yes. one example. Right. Uh, I, I did a webinar with him on this very topic. I think in general, uh, people have always found mental health to be uh, somewhat stigmatized and uh, fear that you will be um, thought of as different or Less than. Um, less than, and and people um, are afraid of appearing vulnerable or weak when, in fact, uh, being open and honest and dealing with your issues or um, drinking or alcoholism or self-esteem or depression is actually not only the first sign of uh, or the first steps in getting healthy, but it really is allowing yourself to not feel so much shame and embarrassment, which is a lot of times a big part of what people are dealing with um, underneath it all. So sellers value themselves a lot of time by their ability to hit a number or hit quota, achieve it. Um, and when they miss, they feel less than. When they succeed, they feel more than. And so, so much of your self-worth is tied up in your sales success. And ultimately, when that much of self-esteem, your own confidence in, is tied up in something external, that's bound to lead to failure and breakdown because you're not always going to be successful. You're not always going to feel good. And figuring out how to see yourself as a thinking, feeling human being who has good days and bad days, good months, good quarters, um, and that doesn't define who you are, I think is a real strength. Yeah, but the, I mean, how do we do that though? Because I mean, so much of the the focus, understandably, it's a performance-based profession, is on performance. I mean, how do people disconnect from the idea of the quota being a measure of their self-worth? Yeah, I think I think it's somewhat deeper than that. I think it's it, people who are looking at their quota as a measure of their self-worth has have always looked at something external as that 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 is their self-worth or what their ultimately how other people see them. So I just think that continuing the conversation and having people who have been successful, who have struggled, um, being open about that and honest about that, I think paves the way for others 
um, to also open up. And I think uh, you had Chris Anthony on a couple of weeks mm-hmm. ago. Mm-hmm. Uh, Chris struggled with alcoholism and right. uh, and has done an amazing job in building a career. And uh, you know, he heads up a really big business unit within Salesforce, and he's been incredibly successful. I've known countless people who have struggled, including myself, with different issues over time. And it's my ability and others' ability to face that and be vocal about that that, in fact, empowers people. So just like a great coach finds a way to motivate people and finds great ways to connect, being open and honest about their own struggles, I think, will allow people that they work with to also open up and face that. Okay, good. I mean, we're we're going to come back to this. This is a topic we're going to talk more about on the podcast because I think it's not enough people are, to your point, are are opening up about it. And yeah, I think it's it's a big problem that that people need to feel empowered to talk about. And unfortunately, I think so much of sales is based on fear. You and I have talked about this before. Is is I think that people cover up their own feeling of inadequacy by instilling fear in others. And we just need to be able to break that that chain. Yeah, I'd love to talk more about this. Listen, my first technology company was uh, a company called For Therapy. The, the prime mission was to connect the two-thirds of the American public who suffered from a behavioral health care disorder uh, with those who could help them, whether mm-hmm. that was a public forum where they can openly chat, whether that was articles written by professional therapists, whether that was uh, therapists or psychologists that were looking to fill their practice with the right type of patients that fit uh, a specific profile or drug and alcohol treatment centers. We grew that thing to over a million unique visitors on a monthly basis. Wow! And it was a, a needed service and and the internet was perfect vehicle for people to anonymously log in, find things that they could relate to, to feel like they're not so alone because a lot of people just feel alone in it. And if you can read other people's stories, if you can connect with other people, that's where the healing begins. And the more we can come out with this stuff, the better. All right. People listening, stay tuned. So last question for you is uh, I just interviewed an author named Steve Hers, wrote a book called Don't Take Yes for an Answer. And what he's writing about is that we are in the situation in the world where people can't get the type of honest feedback they need in order to improve and achieve their own potential. Uh, Meaning that people will tell you you're doing okay, but you're not really, right? And and one thing he talks about in that book was is that a survey that been or a study that been done showing that uh, financial success is based on financial uh, projecting financial success that eighty five percent of your financial success derives from your soft skills personality human ability to connect with humans communicate effectively and so on and fifteen percent on sort of the hard skills in the job and he followed that up then with another survey stat saying that 63% of recent college grads said they think they're extremely prepared in the soft skills area, but only 14% of employers agreed. I'm wondering what, what you're seeing in this as you interview people coming into the workforce. 
Yeah, I think what you're describing is what I call the coddle culture, right? They, we're, we're raising our kids to uh, essentially alert us of any challenge they have, and we race to their side. We pick them up if they – Helicopter parents. In- Yes, yes, exactly. And so they're so used to being told how wonderful they are and, and uh, how perfect they are. And unfortunately, um, it's really hard to learn things when you're being filled with everything you're incredible at and nobody's focusing on those areas that need improvement. And I think that you and I had a conversation recently where uh, you have people coming to the workforce and expecting their boss to be their parents and, mm-hmm. and, and coddle them along and, and be there for their every need. And unfortunately, for me, being there means offering the truth and the truth as I see it. And I could be wrong, but I'm there to provide my experience um, and my feedback. And if that feedback is helpful great. If the feedback isn't helpful, great. But I owe it to you to be honest. And therefore, I, I, I think that we need to move from a everybody gets a participation trophy kind of thing. Um, I think a great example is if you ever saw Meet the Fockers too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, you know, Gaylord has his wall of fame that his dad built and, you know, on there is all his ninth and 10th grade partic- or ninth and 10th place participation trophies. And look, there is something absolutely important about loving your children for who they are and what they are. But we also owe them the truth and perspective and growth and growth isn't easy. It's like working out. It hurts at first and it takes effort and it takes self-honesty. And I think that the more we can help people elicit feedback, the more we can provide feedback where it's not defining who they are, but it's speaking to a skill or to a challenge that they need to further develop, the better we'll all be. Yeah. Well, it's a fascinating story that Steve told when I was interviewing him was that he, as part of research of the book, went and interviewed the head of HR for multi-billion dollar corporation. He didn't name it. They said they had over 400,000 employees. So, you know, relatively small segment of companies that fit that profile. And he's, the head of HR said, yeah, we don't fire people anymore. We just sort of <laughs> move them to another position or, you know, it's so soft, right? They couldn't tell somebody they were fired anymore. They found other ways to sort of navigate them out of the company. And it's like, holy cow, how can you do yeah. that? Right? I mean, yeah. it's for the entire company, no one's getting an honest assessment of, of hey, this is what you need to, to improve or, you know, this is, actually, I, I heard another story recently of companies that no longer do pips when people are on probation it's like well if you have somebody has a performance problem how do you work with them on that i mean it's it's amazing um it just seems to be i said permeating corporate culture yeah and i i hope that some of that starts to change i think that it's definitely been a uh, an environment where it's extremely difficult to hire people, much less talented people. 
And I think like anything, the pendulum may have swung too far to coddling their every need, whether it's emotional, uh, nutritional, uh, you know, and so on. I think yeah. that we, we have done, uh, a disservice for quite a while because my job as a leader is to help people develop into great leaders themselves and to help their team, um, grow their skills and, and be more effective. And if I am not providing feedback, honest feedback, then, I don't know. I don't know how to help people achieve the things that they want to achieve. It, exactly. it, it, yeah. So, yeah. great topic. Thank you, Howard. All right. Next up on the show is my main guest today, Michael Tuso. Michael's the director of revenue performance at Chili Piper. And in this episode, our conversation is focused exactly on that revenue performance, what it means who it affects, what it impacts. You know, sales is all about change, especially when it comes to improving revenue performance. And Michael and I get into the details of how he works with his sales team and sales leadership to plan and measure performance improvement. We'll also talk about one of my favorite topics, which is what are new metrics or KPIs we can use or should be using to more accurately measure performance and performance improvement and do that in a more meaningful way. I mean, quota, well, quota's past its prime, and, and we need more modern ways, more modern tools to look at sales productivity. And we'll get into that in our conversation as well. So all this and much, much more. But before we get to Michael, I want to remind you to subscribe to this podcast wherever you listen to it. And if you subscribe, we'd certainly appreciate it if you could give us your feedback about how we're doing in the form of a review. Thank you for that. All right, let's jump into it. Cool. Welcome to the show. Yes, very excited to be here. Thanks for having me. A pleasure to have you. So uh, where are you <laughs> hiding out or where have you been hiding out? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I am in uh, Southern Oregon in a really cool town called Ashland, Oregon. Very cool town. Yeah. Unfortunately, no Shakespeare this year, I imagine. Yeah, I think I think they're doing something virtual, so I'll have to check that out for sure. Yeah, yeah. No, it's a very cool place. Um, so, yeah, you're normally in the Bay Area, right? Yeah, um, I've lived in the Bay Area, not for a ton of time. Um, I lived in L.A. before that. But, yeah, I normally normally live in uh, the Bay, Bay Area. But in the past couple of months, I've, I've been up in Oregon. So, sort of in the middle of nowhere. Does it feel, does it feel safer being in the middle of nowhere? You know, um, I really love the outdoors, so uh, psychologically, it's been really awesome for me uh, in terms of, like, rejuvenation and um, outdoor recreation. Um, I just got back from a five-day trip where, you know, I haven't put down a phone and computer completely for days on end in quite some time, so that was that was kind of nice. Um, so you said yeah. you were doing a rafting trip, so you didn't turn on your phone the whole time? Yeah, I didn't even use my phone for pictures. I let other people take pictures. That's how much I wanted to disconnect. <laughs> wow, uh, that so, is extreme. Yeah. And so, well, so question follow-up is, is, okay, so you've had that experience. What are you going to do differently going forward? I mean, has it inspired you to say, okay, well, I, I got to change my behavior. Look, I <laughs> spend way too much time on my phone. Yeah, I, you know, I think for me it's more of the question of um, – using self-care to feed your work. I think sometimes, especially in the tech sales space, um, 
and I'm guilty of this just as anyone else, like in our heads, sometimes we equate success with uh, more, like it's always more, 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 mm-hmm, more, more. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, that just hasn't been my experience in my career. I'm, I'm, you know, totally for working like really hard and things like that. Um, I think this trip kind of taught me and more, more reminded me than anything that, uh, it self care is quintessential to high performance. Um, and, and that's something that I've been, you know, really, really focused on. And so, you know, the fact that it's been years, uh, since I put my cell phone down as just one little micro example for five days and didn't look at it, you know, is you know pretty, pretty telling that I need to take my own advice. But, you know, I, I think it is a good, a good reminder that whatever it is that you connect with, um, you know, for me, it's recreation and nature and rafting and camping and things like that. And I find that to be a real way to disconnect so that when I come back to work, I'm able to um, make the biggest possible impact. What's sort of interesting thinking about this year and everything that's going on with the, the COVID pandemic and so on is, is, yeah, I was thinking about this the other day is to this whole point about self-care is, and think about it even in my own context, it's like, well, hmm, normally I take a lot of vacation. <laughs> and it's like, yeah, but I don't really have any place to go that's that I would normally go that that's open and available and not clear that it will be for quite some time, given sort of the current rate of, of what's happening. It's like, yeah. I imagine probably like a lot of people are just going to sort of thinking, am I just going to work through this? Mm-hmm. And this time that is, to your point earlier, is is there's this undercurrent of anxiety we all feel about it. Um, yeah, what? And I think you just think about that for all the people in a high stress job like sales is that that's sort of compounding, I imagine. Yeah, and then and compounded on top of that, like not leaving the house. And then yeah. you know I've been working remotely for some time, but then add that to a lot of people's plate that they haven't you know been working remotely, and then you know whatever fears and anxieties people have about themselves or their families or you know uh, any given set of new news and current events that people have gotten you know as, as stressed. I think it's now is the time. You know, very frequently I find, especially with sales reps. When they start getting stressed out, they stop doing the self-care things. Mm-hmm. And I, I've even caught myself doing that. And it's like, it's hard for cortisol to coexist with things like learning and investing in yourself and meditation and, you know, so, you know things, yeah. things like that. And, you know, so I always like when a stressful event happens, I go, okay, where where's the antidote to this? Where's the, the way that... I can, you know, rejuvenate faster and rest. And then so during this time, I'm sort of preparing for when we're on the upswing, but also not like losing whatever opportunities are happening right in front of my face at that time. Um, so to your, to your point about vacation, like I had several planned for this year. One, um, one was in Ireland, one was yeah. another place abroad. So we quickly... Uh, we're like, well, we could say that, you know, this is happening to us, or we could say, how do we adjust and actually keep having fun, keep having really, you know, cool plans, um, and sort of involving other people around us in those plans and things like that. So, you know, that, that's kind of how the, the rafting trip for us was, was born. Actually, we were around a campfire talking about it and just kind of came up and then we just did it. So yeah, adaptation cool. is key. It is. It is. Yeah. Um, 
yeah, we're still working on that. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, we yeah. did adapt by leaving Manhattan and, and coming out to, to San Diego. That that helped quite a bit. So yeah, a little more access to nature more immediately <laughs> here, uh, and yeah. way fewer way fewer people, even for a big city. So yeah, yeah, White Mansions could be a, a tough. It is already tough, but it's tougher. You know, parents that look forward to summer vacation or. Yeah. Then look forward to the end of summer vacation. Is, <laughs> that may not be any different this year. They may still have have the kids at home. You got two parents trying to both work and care for kids, and that's yeah, that's quite something that everybody's experienced at this time. Um, so self care, obviously, very important. So I remember, I don't know, we met, I guess, on LinkedIn, right? Yeah, yeah, because I remember coming across something you wrote there and thinking to myself. What a smart guy! We should get him on the show. Um, and and here you are. Thanks for having me. Well, I'm glad we we're able to get you on. So, so you're uh, interested in your your job. So you're director of revenue performance at yep. Chili Piper. So, well, first of all, just tell us a little bit about Chili Piper so people know that, and then we'll get into my questions about your job. Yeah, absolutely. So we work in the uh, sales and marketing space, uh, most notably. Um, uh, Chili Piper uh, is was born out of scheduling. Um, now we handle the uh, scheduling of your inbound leads. So there's there's this problem of leads not being connected to sales fast enough. Um, you know, Harvard released mm-hmm. a, a study that if you if you don't get in in touch with them within the first five minutes, the probability of getting connected to, with them decreases by eighty eight percent. Uh, and Chili Piper basically solves that. People try, usually have tried to solve it with things like SLAs and uh, things like that in the past. So Chili Piper immediately schedules um, the meeting upon form fill. Mm-hmm. Um, we we also have some interesting um, email collaboration tools that we're in the middle of launching right now um, as well. So that's a little bit about us. Yeah, it's interesting. You you bring up those those stats and and actually I think I I think they all come from sort of this. <laughs> original sort of, I think it was an MIT study actually with that InsideSales.com had commissioned. Yeah, yeah. Uh, now, you know, fifteen, almost twenty years. It's like makes me wonder: is that still the case? Because this is, I was reading an ebook just last week that that had just been put out by a, another tech company, uh, quoting very similar, you know, the same data. We all have the same data, <laughs> which I think is a problem, right? Is is that we all. There's so little actually research done about sales that when we get these data points, we all glom onto them and keep repeating them forever. This being one of them, but I, I mean, I'm a huge believer in this whole concept of responsiveness. I think you know the concept of speed to lead and and uh, being first has a tremendous competitive advantage. I mean, I think that that um, well, let you respond to that first. I mean, do you do you agree with that? I mean, I, I imagine you guys do a chili piper. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I, I agree with the point that that stat is outdated uh, wholeheartedly. Um, and and so that indicator to me and sort of the underlying assumption that we're making is that you have to be faster than that even to be successful. And our data, you know, even though there are tons of uh, data uh publicly available mm-hmm. um, out there, the data that I see, at least with my own sales team and companies that I work with on a regular basis that the faster that you are at capturing 
that prospect at the point of interest, really the better off it is. And, and that's been really consistent over the 2 million plus meetings that, you know, we, we see booked mm-hmm. um, on the platform and more. So I totally agree with the, the point of, you know, some of the data being, you know, outdated and, 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 and that lends itself to be, we have to be even more responsive than that. So I totally agree. Yeah. Well, I think it's a good point. So we have to be even more responsive. Um, and I think, there's sort of two aspects to that one is is what constitutes being responsive because uh, I I first wrote about this this topic exactly gosh <laughs> in my book in 2012 or 2011 um, talking about responsiveness uh, responsiveness is just not speed is is you can respond quickly to someone but if you have nothing of value to give them incentive to keep going with the conversation then in my mind you're not responsive you're just fast. And and I think it's that combination of speed and value that constitutes responsiveness. And I think that's the critical thing is is that if if you can respond with value quickly, then part of what happens is is in my experience to show over too long a time to count is that you start reducing the customer's incentive to go talk to anybody else. Yeah, and and this is. This is a concept I find so interesting. Is sellers automatically assume that every deal is going to be competitive. And that maybe the customer's intent to to talk to multiple vendors. But when you look at the psychology of how people are making decisions, is generally people want to gather enough information to make a good decision. Mm-hmm. And not necessarily the best decision. If that's the case, being first with value gives you a huge leg up. Yeah, I, I totally um I totally agree with that. I used to work in politics and I can remember one of the sort of mentors at the time would always tell me, you know, don't let great get in the way of good. And mm-hmm. many, many times I, I find that to be true, you know, with perfectionists that I see like on my teams or even the perfectionist tendencies that I might have, um, a lot of times, you know, that will lend itself to, uh, to like being fearful and also at the expense of, um, efficiency and just getting it done. And so I think like, you know, we do spend a lot of time focusing on execution in business. So I think that's where a lot of the decision-making is coming from, like, because it, once you execute, you can always like iterate, um, and, and execution is so important. And so I think that's where a little bit of that, um, thinking comes from. And I also really agree with the, the whole concept of, uh, providing um, providing value um, in addition to that that speed as well. Um, yeah, I couldn't agree with that more. Yeah, because I this concept I've used with with companies in the past is is uh, we talked about if you can have that level of responsiveness, so you can have some value in that first interaction that again gives them an incentive to want to keep investing time in you. What you're doing is is uh, what we like to call is take prospects off the street. <laughs> that's, that was our goal, right? If we could make those first, the first interaction or the first couple of interactions so strong that and get so engaging that, yeah, we reduced their incentive to go talk to someone else and we effectively removed them from the competitive sphere. Yeah, that's like this is one of the first, like, actually the only LinkedIn article I've ever read. I've written quite a few like blogs, but, um, 
you, you know, I, I always, uh, I'm a, I'm a consider myself to be a coach for the sales team. Now, uh, my first job ever, like as a teenager was a, a karate coach basically. <laughs> and, um, I asked like one of my mentors who, um, I think is like an eighth degree black belt now and someone I really, really looked up to. And I said, you know, what, why did you choose the school? And he said, you know, uh, I called the school closest to my house and they didn't pick up the phone. And then I called this place and they picked up the phone in 20, almost 30 years now he's, he's been there. And it was literally because it was so easy for <laughs> right. him to convert. Right. Um, and, and, uh, you know, that's a, a really specific example, but that same thing happens in B2B sales every single day and people don't do anything about it. Um, they don't, they aren't as scientific about like what's actually happening at the top, top of the funnel. So then it, it creates like friction for the buyer that they don't even realize. So I always tell people like, have you ever gone through your own cycle and like ask yourself the question, how can, how can you make this, uh, this process, uh, how can you make this process better? And so frequently people don't, you know, and then the yeah. second thing I always say is like, do you talk to their customer about what they think about your processes? And again, the answers to, the, to those questions are typically like, you know, I haven't done that or thought of that. <laughs> so, uh, you know, I think if you want to see problems in your own buying cycle, walk yourself through them or, or put yourself in the, in the position of sales rep. Um, I'm sort of experimenting with that right now. And um, I every so often like taking on some of the accounts to learn, okay, like there's a problem here and I mm -hmm. can't quite get it through communication. Let right. me di dive in and see precisely what's going on, fix the whatever the issue is. It also gains respect to the team when they see that like you're not one of those leaders that doesn't mind dusting the cobwebs off, making yourself <laughs> vulnerable in front of right. everyone else. And then, and then when you go back to, um, you know, just sort of strictly managing and coaching it, it gains you a lot of like credibility. Yeah. I mean, gosh, a ton there in your answer. And I, yeah, I think one thing for, um, companies that you talked about is, yeah, experience your own selling process as a buyer is, is really important. And I had a similar story to yours about the, your karate coach and, you know, started calling one closest to his home and, and so on is, is remember years ago had a ant infestation in, in a home here in the San Diego area and and at that time went online relatively rudimentary ads online at that period of time but you know chose the one that came up first in the search returns and and called them they were a big name company and and yeah and first of all no one answered the phone it goes to a message and they start patting themselves on the back about we have such great level of customer service we guarantee you'll get a call back within 24 hours. And I'm sitting there going, I've got a river of ants about six inches wide streaming across my floor. <clears throat> I, I, I need to do something now, right? So, yeah, I picked up, called the next one on the list, and they came out in two hours and, and took care of it. And yep. that's who I always used. So, yeah, if you make it, they were so proud of their process. But the fact is the process was a reason not to do business with them. Yeah, that's so true. Um yeah, be careful what you pride yourself on. I guess is one of the lessons, my takeaways from that because it might not be what your customer is is looking for. Yeah, and you need to know that. So, all right. So, you're director of revenue performance. So, what does that mean? Because you don't see the title very often. Yeah. Um, well, uh, I wrote a post recently about this, and um, <clears throat> I've actually did a, 
a LinkedIn search and a Google search as well and spent quite some time looking and it didn't find anyone with the title. Um, so as, um, so I, I think I'm the only one with the title, but I hope that changes. Um, and I was, I was at a conference and, um, we were sort of talking about my promotion, but, um, I, you know, told the CEO months earlier that I didn't want to be a director of sales. I said, if, mm-hmm. uh, if it's any indicator that, um, you know, the average tenure is 19 months, I said, <laughs> to me, that's not a big enough, um, impact. And I said, I want to make a really big impact on a company and you simply can't do that in that amount of time. And he sort of paused for a second and I could tell he was really internalizing it and, 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 uh, <laughs> you know, found it to be a really good idea, um, that I didn't want to follow the same trajectory and maybe, maybe even some of my mentors did. And instead I, he saw that I really wanted to to carve my own path. So then he sort of posed the question back to me and said, so what do you want to do? And I said, well, I want to do the things that I'm, you know, that I am doing right now, but across the entire revenue funnel. Plus I want to own, uh, special projects. The things that I owned at that time and still do were coaching, training, enablement, um, and really the owning the learning of everyone on the revenue team. So for us, we define that as SDRs, account executives, um, and account managers. So I own mm-hmm. the training, mm-hmm. enablement, onboarding, coaching, ongoing coaching uh, for, for all of those teams. Um, and then we sort of came to the, the revenue um, performance as something that was all encompassing and focused on those key things. Um, we chose not to call it um, enablement sort of intentionally because we wanted me like really focused on each individual's tailored performance by individual and holistically as a group. So that's basically how we came up with director of revenue performance. Yeah, I like it. I like it. I mean, I, I um, well, first of all, there's, there's, you know, still a fair amount of debate about what what enablement really means. I agree. And so, yeah, having something that, that uh, speaks specifically to revenue performance, I like, I like. Now, why revenue performance versus sales performance? And this is, <laughs> this is, this is more driven by my curiosity because it seems like everything that previously had a sales title before it, sales ops, you know, sales, da da da, sales, da da. It's now revenue ops, revenue performance, da da da. So, is there a, you know, is that a just a matter of a distinction without a difference, or how are you guys looking at to differentiate the two? So, I strongly favor, obviously, not just because it's in my title, but I strongly favor the sort of like uh, almost like a movement, you know, you have CRO, you have director mm-hmm. um, of revenue operations, revenue enablement, you know, lot, many different. And it, it really, for me, stems from the idea that no one single person is responsible for revenue. And I think sometimes we like to dump a lot of that responsibility on a VP of sales and say, wave your magic wand and go do sales. And it's just really a lot more complex than that. And really every individual in a company in one way or another is responsible holistically for the business being, you know, successful. If someone in CS isn't pulling their, you know, weight, that hurts another department and and, and vice versa. So for me, I, I am deeply passionate actually about um, this like trend towards revenue because I think for me it implies a more scientific approach 
And it also implies like we're sort of all in this together. And, and it, you know, it isn't just sales job to create a business. It's everyone's job. And I think sometimes we forget that like, we're all creating a business. It's not just it's not just sales. So um, I really like the trend, and 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 that's sort of part of my reason for really pushing for that instead of sales and, and my own personal title. Sure. And, and I encourage others to do so as well. Okay, so who do you report to? The CEO. <laughs> Interesting. So did your CRO have a problem with that? We uh, so we don't have a CRO. We're still okay. pretty. Uh, we're still pretty small. Um, okay. I was also the first management hire, like less than 10 employees. So, <laughs> All right. Well, that's good. Yeah. I mean, somebody's got to be there from the beginning and, and uh, have the history of the organization and so on. Okay. So let's talk about this just idea of performance because people listen to the show know this is one of, my, one of my passions. So how are you defining performance? That's a really good question. Um, I really take an individual approach uh, to to performance and I, I really try to manage uh, to skills of that respective individual. And you can hear it on sales calls, right? You pull two random calls from two different people. Inevitably, they're going to be different things that they do well and, and, uh, and, and different things that they don't do well. Uh, and so... This idea of a cookie cutter approach to learning and development, or no approach at all, where you mm-hmm. just say, "Here's your number, go hit it." I really think that one of the biggest problems in sales and business today is we tell people, "Here's your quota," and then we don't show them how to do it. And um, as as someone you know who is in, in a, a performance or enablement type function, I have been a top performer. I you know I have had a $20,000 paycheck in one month as a 25 year old. So it's not some sort of pipe dream uh, that I'm not backing up with either personal experience or data. It's really rooted in this concept of learning. The reason why I was able to put up really big numbers as a top AE at a fortune 500 company is because I spent so much time learning and developing my own skill set despite not having a manager who knew how to do that in other people. And ever since sort of that moment, I was sort of, you know, borderline obsessed with this concept of like, if you focus on this learning and development piece, everything from everything from retention and attrition, like those, you know, it just gets so much better in retaining top talent. If you just spend time on some of these more intrinsic things like helping coaching them from one point to another successively through their careers. Um, you know, and even with like SDRs that has a very high turnover <clears throat> rate, if you spend a lot of time on this coaching and development piece, you can really get some amazing AEs out of these people who are loyal to you, your leadership style, and the company. And so I really focus on individual. Uh, performance, but also collective performance and collective mind share. So I, I make people have a stake in it and not uh, don't just do a top-down strategy or a centralized strategy where everything comes from me and I'm the end-all be-all when it comes mm-hmm. to all things sales. Like we're all constantly learning every day. And, and that's really the, the mindset that I adopt when I um, am, am, am leading the teams here. So this is sort of the, the core question is, is 
is both comes from two angles. One is you know, how much responsibility should you put on the individual for their own development? Yeah. And versus what the company is responsible for. And but sort of the flip side is as the individual, how much of your own development should you take responsibility for? Yeah, what what should your mindset be in terms of because I think that the one of the things that I see is that to some degree people sort of look at you know company provided training as sort of like an entitlement, right? We're sort yeah. of entitled to this complete suite of of training and development, and if I don't get it, that's part of my source of dissatisfaction, and I'm, I may leave and go to the next place. But I've never experienced any environment that's perfect in that regard, that is mm-hmm. you know, completely comprehensive. And, and as you said, you're trying to tailor to the individual. They all have individual needs and interests and levels of curiosity. So so how do you, how do you blend those, right? What, what should the company take responsibility for what does the individual need to take responsibility for yeah so i love this question i think it's something that comes up uh very very often you can see it in the interview process that's the first thing i thought of when you said that is you're sitting in the interview you ask them about you know things that they do uh for growth and they sort of say give a vanilla answer or they give something that isn't really like profound um, I think leaders, by the way, need to be setting the pace. You know, I, I don't think that there's a question that anyone on the team would ask if I spend time developing my own skill set. They know I practice. They know I read three books a month at minimum. And mm-hmm. listening to con- um, content of other people can recite uh, basically what every other company in the space is doing. So there's, there's, I, there's never that question in the sales rep's head, like, what is this person that is supposed to be leading me doing? They know the answer through action. So then, so, and I try to set that as like an example. And I really do think that people need to have more responsibility than I'm seeing, at least in the candidate pools that I do today of very vanilla answers when it comes to what are you doing in terms of your own growth and development. And some of the things that you could do there, you know, you know, sign up for, there's so much free content out there today that people are doing. There's, uh, inexpensive content that, that are out there that, um, you can spend, uh, you know, time in, you know, I wanted to get into meditation one time. So instead of saying, Oh, I'm going to do it, I paid for it so that it held me accountable. Same thing with like the gym membership. Mm-hmm. If you, if you aren't doing the same thing with your growth and, and development, it's a, definitely a red flag for me. So I think there's a huge amount that uh, responsibility that falls on the individual that quite frankly, I don't see a lot of people doing then the, then the, the same is true for companies. I don't, I don't very frequently see robust programs, particularly in the area of continuous education, like post onboarding, post ramp, how do you develop people? And let's be real. Like sometimes sales can be monotonous and it's filled with rejection. And that's the purpose. What? Envi- Perfect. <laughs> That's a perfect environment where you have burnout and you have people that aren't connect, connected meaningfully to their work who feel like that they, they don't have a voice or even a stake in what's going on in the company. And when people don't feel like they have control in that sense, that's mm-hmm. that's when they produce mediocre work and you get the same sort of results that we see across the industry today where, you know, um, 
50% or, you know, one of the sure. most common, you know, I think, I think that's one of the most commonly feel free to correct me, but that's the one I've heard consistently for the past 12 <laughs> months now, 50% of people are missing their quota and yeah, we don't well, stop and ask why. Well, yeah, well, that's true. I mean, that's, <laughs> there's, so yeah, CSO insights puts out their annual report on sales performance and yeah, the trend over the last eight years has been declining and I think it's, you know, 50% or below and yeah, win rates are low in the SaaS business and you know, all these, all these data points, separate data points to serve. So yeah, perhaps we've got a problem, but uh-huh. yeah, how do we really, really address it? And so one of the questions I'd ask you is, is yeah. so I've, what I've seen through, again, throughout my experience, but it's becoming more clear these days based on what's happening is that, if you say, okay, sales performance improvement, revenue performance improvement is, is a process, that the sort of rate determining step in that process is actually improved performance on the part of the managers. Mm-hmm. So I think that's, and that's the part I think gets overlooked, is I think, I don't think salespeople can improve any faster than their sales leadership does. Amen. And so, and so unless, unless, but, yeah, you know, have you ever heard anybody use the term sales management enablement? <laughs> you know, the focus is the problem's got to be the sellers. Yeah, and I say the problem. Yeah, sellers have problems, but the real problem starts with the managers and and the leadership. And it, the same thing is true of frontline sales manager. They can't improve any faster than their management improves. Yeah, and it goes all the way up to the top. Yeah, I agree. Um, I had been a manager for like seven years or more before, yeah, I think it was seven years before I ever got formal training. Um, the average, the average is 10, by the way, the the first time you get training 10 years as a manager before you get your first training. Yeah. That was, uh, just interviewed a guest on the show about that about a month ago, Peter economy. You can read his book on first time managers. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. And, and, you know, if you have one bad sales rep, you know, that's a problem, obviously. But if you have one bad manager, that's up to, you know, I've seen up to 15 direct reports. Yeah, 15 bad reps, yeah. Yeah. Or suboptimal reps, let's say. Exactly. Even if you have top performers on their team, they, there's probably better that they could be, you know, better work that they could be producing if they had a, a better manager. Even in books like Extreme Ownership, like it's very common that like, that you can take a a poor or, you know a better leader that was on a poor performing team and raise the results of that team by, by through that like replacement. So mm-hmm. I think that you know manager enablement is something that is very often overlooked. Um, I cite this. I've been citing this as study a lot over the past like few weeks. But Gallup did a really good uh, study on this on the state of the American manager and they really break down this phenomenon in sales. And I don't know why anyone's not talking about this, uh, quite frankly, because it's this whole phenomenon of you promote the top performers, the, you know, the, the whale killers or whatever you want to call it, you know, these really pejorative ways that we label people who are mm-hmm. top performers and then, and then we uh, don't enable them. So then what happens is they start telling people, the default, which is like how they did it, which isn't always applicable uh, to other other people, and being a coach, usually usually not applicable. Yes, yes, exactly, um, and, and exactly, and it's not to say that a top performer can't be 
a top manager. I totally kind of agree with that too. But the roles are different is, is what I'm saying. And you have to account for the differences. And right now we don't account for those differences. We say that top sales rep, rep equals top manager. And maybe it does for that specific person, but you need to be asking the questions of what constitutes a really good manager. And oftentimes it's a softer, softer skills as well as the ability to drive change um, in an organization. Um, mm-hmm. And, and that, that study is really fascinating for me um, as someone who has you know, spent basically all of my career as a manager. And I think those are things that are very often overlooked. Um, yeah. Well, and I think that last point you talked about is being able to drive change becomes one of the key attributes that, yeah. that certainly as a coach or a manager – uh, as a sales leader, you need to be able to have is if you can't drive change internally, it's in some respects you'd look at it on the surface and say, "Well, that's that's what you've been doing in sales your entire career, driving change." But it's different internally than it is with with a customer. I mean, some of the things overlap, but they're not always not always the same. And I agree with you. That's oftentimes where where uh, promoted salespeople have a really hard time. Yeah. And, and you kind of asked the question earlier about how much is on the company and how much is on the, the person. And I think like one of the, this, this question has sort of been tugging at me for a while now. And I think that one of the things that I explored earlier this year is this idea of giving people a stake. And um, so, so one of the things I did was I had, I explored with some of our, our revenue team and I had them actually lead the trainings and and usually we think of like sales leaders only leading the trainings you know and and all of the organizations i've been a, a part of until this point the sales leader always led the trainings and always led the coaching but i said what if we reverse engineered this to give people a stake in what's going on and the results were crazy we we saw that um people reinforcing concepts without me having to say anything they said, "Did did you try doing this?" Or, "Oh, you could you could try you could try getting better at this." And and it all the only thing I did was I had <clears throat> I did spend a ton of time with people on how to get the right content and coaching them on how to deliver it and how to get engagement from the team. And then I also was able to reinforce it myself through one on ones after. But that simple act of saying, hey, I, I think that you're the right person to lead this. Will, will you help me with this? And then them running with it. I, I had one person that spent 40 hours. I didn't tell him to. He just did it on his own. 40 hours crafting a presentation that he he did in her sales training mm-hmm. that we still cite regularly today. And so um, for me, th- this is that crux of what you're talking about, which is, how much is on the individual and how much is on the company. And to me, that, that was an answer that checked both of those boxes. Yeah, and I think that, that I love the fact you're doing that because I think one of the, all, one of the things that addresses as well is many people have heard this term, this study done by these, uh, I think, Cornell sociologists, uh, Dunning and Kruger, that come up the discovered what they call the Dunning-Kruger phenomenon that you know people overestimate their capabilities and uh, therefore underestimate <laughs> what they need to learn in order to yeah. keep improving. Mm-hmm. And so they stop learning. And I think that if you, yeah, take top performers who think they know everything and force them to teach something, they begin to learn pretty quickly that, oh yeah, there's a lot that I don't know. And maybe it stimulates their engagement and in, in their own development in a way that maybe they had stopped before. 
that's so funny you bring that up because I've had top performers who, you know, maybe, maybe it wasn't, you know, isn't always the easiest to get a top performer or someone with a lot of tenure to, you know, historically that's been a tougher area of motivation than maybe someone more junior or more junior to the company uh, to engage in learning or the behaviors that you'd mm-hmm. like. So again, yeah, I love that. I actually experienced that firsthand too. And, you know, afterwards the salesperson said, oh my gosh, I don't know how you do this every week. So at least I got some of the the empathy out of it and uh, was able to be helpful later on down the line. (laughs) Perfect. All right. Well, Michael, unfortunately we've run out of time, but uh, tell folks how they can connect with you. Absolutely. I'm super active on LinkedIn. Uh, so if you message me, I will uh, respond and more than happy to engage with people on LinkedIn. Great. Michael, thank you so much. We'll do this again. I didn't even get to half my questions. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Looking forward to coming back. All right. Thanks. Okay, friends, that's it for this episode. First of all, I want to thank you for taking the time to listen. I'm so grateful for your support of the show. And I want to thank Michael Tuso for sharing his insights with us today. Now, if you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to this podcast, Sales Enablement with Andy Paul, on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And if you could also leave us a rating or review, let us know how we're doing. Well, we'd certainly appreciate it. You can do all that on your phone in less than a minute as soon as this podcast is over. So thank you for your help. And thank you so much for investing your time with me today. Until next time, I'm your host, Andy Paul. Good selling, everyone. Good selling, everyone.